Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revived Thoughts. For simply to hear and receive the spoken word in the ear is common to all men. But the habit of penetrating deep into profitable thoughts is found only with those who are truly wise. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered today. We're going all the way back to the 5th century to listen to a sermon by Cyril of Alexandria. Cyril, Cyril, Sorel, I will, in advance, I'm warning the listeners in advance, I will probably pronounce this name a few different ways. I apologize. I'm sure that there is a linguistic expert out there that is cringing at their headphones right now. I will do my best to pronounce it. Uh, consistently here. I lied at the top of the show. I said, this is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. Troy is not with me at the moment. He's settling back into uh, his life in Indonesia. They are getting their internet situation all sorted out. So it is a Joel solo episode for today. And I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking, listener. Uh, oh, Troy, he's the smart one. Troy's he's the one that does all the research and that, and that he's brilliant and he remembers all this stuff. But hey, Joel can do some research too, and uh, I'm particularly interested and fascinated by this period of history in the 4th and 5th century. Before we jump into the episode, I want to shout out an iTunes five-star review. This one comes from username jbird1689, and he says, Church History Fan Approved. Love the show, guys. Got turned on by a friend at church and have been really enjoying it. I appreciate the background for the preachers or subject and the modernized language of the sermons that you do. I would imagine it's difficult sometimes. I also really like that you use people that aren't as well known as some of the other giants in faith we already know and love. Ephraim of Syria, uh, for example, was awesome. Never heard of him before. Thank you so much, uh, Jaybird1689. We always appreciate uh, feedback as such. So Cyril of Alexandria, he was a man that was born in Egypt in the year 376. And he was educated in the, in the formal Christian education system at the time, which meant uh, going through the educational program, learning rhetoric, classics, uh, basic theology, things like that. This is a really interesting time in church history and Christian history in general, where uh, Rome is kind of on its way out and the Roman emperors are at the time, and again, there were some good ones and there was bad ones in this era, or ones that helped Christianity and ones that, that were opposed to Christianity at this time, but uh, really using Christianity as a way to help bond the empire, the, this falling empire, uh, many of them wanted to stabilize it in a, a unified Christian body at this time. And oftentimes the methods at which they would force people to convert to Christianity are ones that we would be opposed to. Cyril's uh, uncle, for example, was a man named uh, Theopolis. And Theopolis was a powerful archbishop that the emperor had put in place. And 
the emperor had actually sent Theopolis to Egypt, specifically to deal with uh, some directions that the church there was going that were not in line with what the emperor wanted for that area. So he sent Theopolis with soldiers to uh, harass the monks there into following the, what the emperor had set out as what he wanted the church to do there. Theopolis, you might also recognize that name in connection with John Chrysostom, who we've done a few episodes on. Theopolis set out to depose Chrysostom, and it's Theopolis's disposition of Chrysostom that would eventually lead to his exile and passing. So uh, Theopolis is not someone that we would say was a good guy. That you know He was in opposition to a lot of the uh, uh, church fathers that we think of. And Cyril was in this world. Again, that was his uncle. Uh, what do you do when you're brought up in that family, in that style, in that life? Uh, what do you do with that power? That's the question that we find ourselves with uh, in this instance here. And this is an interesting uh, uh, thought exercise, an interesting episode to kind of take and analyze what this era looked like from a more empire view. Again, the empire was really struggling to create unity within the empire there. And Theopolis was partly put in charge to help get everyone get on the same page. And we see people like Chrysostom fighting against that and going down in history for, for their beliefs and, and for uh, making these grand statements. But Cyril is an example of someone that uh, seems to have really tried to change the system from within it. You know, if you have the power to burn down churches and imprison monks and send people into exile and even kill people that disagree with you, all of these which Cyril would, would end up having— but you don't use him in that way. You know, that does that make you a better ruler, a better leader than others that uh, have abused that power? At the same time, you can totally understand why people like Christostom would have opposed almost the, the concept of people that can wield that power and use that power in, in, a, in an abusive sense. His title, you know, Cyril of Alexandria, Alexandria was the city that he's in. And this is one of the most important cities of this era. Again, this is a declining Roman empire at this time. Rome itself had been overthrown by barbarians at this point already. So the kingdom had kind of shifted eastward over to Constantinople. And here in Alexandria, we see Cyril becoming uh, the archbishop in charge of the church. Again, mostly due to family connections that were there at the time. But this was, a, from the get-go, a very difficult city to run. There were lots of conflicting and clashing ideas, lots of conflicting and clashing uh, religions. And these groups were uh, constantly fighting with each other. For example, there's an, an instance where uh, Cyril had a man one of his disciples uh, go to the theater to look at some new rules that were posted, you know, how to conduct yourself at a theater. These were new rules that were put in place. The theater was a little bit rowdy at the time, so uh, his disciple ran out to read these new rules, and he did so publicly, uh, you know, reading the rules. I imagine them, you know, nailed to the door of the theater there, and his disciple was actually pleased with these rules. He thought that they were good rules to put in place. Again, uh, it was a rowdy place. People acted poorly. These new rules would enforce better order uh, there at the theater. 
the ones in Alexandria who led the theater were Jewish. There, there were Jewish people that led it, and uh, apparently they took a lot of offense to how Cyril's disciple was reading these rules out and, and reacting to them in the way that he did. And so they beat him up. They, they tortured him, and not quietly in a back alley or anything like that, but they dragged him inside the theater and uh, beat him in front of a crowd as they were watching. And Cyril was very upset by this. He sent out word saying that if the Jewish people could not hold themselves back from violence, then they would be removed from the city. And this made the Jewish contingent even angrier, as you can imagine, and they continued attacking Christians, and uh, they even came up with a plan to assassinate a bunch of Christians. Uh, Their plan was to go out and within Alexandria to yell that there's a fire at the church. And they would hide and wait for Christians to come out to help put out the fire, thus thus giving up your hand, your identity as a, as a Christian. You want to defend the church. You want to, you want to protect the church. Uh, and then they would kill you. You know, they, they would kill the people that would come out to help uh, the church not burn down. And, and they conducted this plan. They set out to do it. They wore uh, special rings, you know, like, like assassin rings so that they would know uh, who each other were. And anyone that would approach the church at night, uh, they were killed. And it was a, a pretty brutal massacre. And the next part of history is a little bit unclear as far as to which counts you would take seriously, but um, some people say that Cyril uh, took all of the Jews in the whole city, took all their possessions, and banished them out of Alexandria. Uh, Other accounts say that he was more specific, uh, more... Uh, did did more of an investigation to figure out who was actually involved with these attacks, with these assassinations, and just banished those people out. It wasn't just a, a blanketed banishment of all Jewish people. Either way, uh, these are some of the conflicts that he is having to deal with as Archbishop in Alexandria. Cyril has a few other interactions where uh, murders took place and they were blamed on him and and he tried to defend his innocence. And uh, there's things that go back and forth within, you know, political debates about how, if he should be the archbishop there and what he should, if he should resign and and people thought he should resign. Other people thought that it wouldn't make any difference if he resigned or not. Other people liked him, but it just kind of goes to show you that it's, an interesting thought of what do you do when you have the power to do anything you want when you when you physically have the power to banish people or or drive them out uh most people in america you know most pastors and churches don't have that power and i think that's a good thing but uh what happens when you do have that power how do you use it you know where do you draw the line what is a good execution of power uh what is a bad use of power uh there I'm I'm sure you could have endless debates uh, along these lines. One of his most famous controversies is over Nestorius. We won't go into all the details. We actually covered a little bit of this in our deep dive on Ethiopia. You can check out part one of our Ethiopia Ethiopia deep dive to talk a little bit more about Nestorius. But the summary is that uh, Cyril found out that Nestorius was not calling Mary mother of God Theotokos, but was uh, rather teaching that she was the mother of Christ. 
Cyril believed that Nestorius thought that there was a human part of Jesus and a God part of Jesus and that, would, and that they were not united, but they were two separate entities, and that Christ was not able to suffer because of the divine part of him shielding him from the pain and suffering. Debates like these, talk, conversations like these, uh, were very, very common in the 400s and the 300s. Lots of meetings around these topics, lots of councils around these topics uh, to decide the deity of Christ. Um, the concepts that I feel like we take for granted now, to understanding that Jesus was, you know, what we would say 100% man and 100% God, both existing at the same time within the same person, uh, was not something that everyone had settled on or agreed upon back then, and it was something that they were constantly having to uh, meet about and iron out. Again, if the empire is trying to do everything they can to establish unity, this was one of the main things that they had to get sorted out. Cyril was was obviously in opposition to this uh, take that he assigned to Nestorius, and he warned the monks in Egypt not to take Nestorius's teachings seriously on this on this topic. And Nestorius uh, took offense to this, and he actually preached a sermon against Cyril. They sent letters back and forth, and things got more and more heated. The emperor finally uh, said, hey, we need to settle this. Uh, let's have a big meeting about it, and this one would become called the Council of Ephesus. Cyril had permission to begin the council, and he did so, even though Nestorius's people didn't show up, they hadn't shown up yet. And because of that, Nestorius refused to participate. So Nestorius himself would get condemned by the council. And when Nestorius's people finally did show up, they were mad at Cyril and they condemned him. They called him a, quote, a heretic monster born and educated for the destruction of the church, end quote. So these two sides fought, and again, Cyril eventually issued a reconciliatory statement. This seemed to, to reconcile people. But I feel like through all of this, he kind of put Cyril on the emperor's bad side. The emperor did not like Cyril in this latter part of his life. And the emperor would actually end up annulling this council, the Council of Ephesus, and Cyril uh, was arrested. He was able to, to slip out of prison and make his way back to Egypt, uh, but he had no more title, no more power, nothing uh, to his name. And when the empire eventually found him in Egypt there, he was able to bribe off the soldiers from arresting him again. And then he sent messengers on a mission to a supporter back in Constantinople, and uh, this supporter was able to get a mob together, and they ended up harassing the palace and throwing stuff at it and shouting day and night until the emperor decided to let Cyril have his old position back and instead send Nestorius into exile. And all of these issues would eventually uh, lead to a big break in the church in the year 451, but that would happen uh, long after Cyril dies. He dies in the year 444. Uh, he never saw that church break happen. So was Cyril uh, successful in protecting the church with the power of the state? Uh, I do genuinely think that Cyril of Alexandria was trying to follow God and that he was trying to help preserve Christians and ensure Christianity would take root and flourish in the future. And with many people in the, you know, the, the third, fourth, fifth centuries, 
would we do it that way now? Absolutely not. You know, like there, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of people that didn't know what they were doing, but they genuinely believed in something. They genuinely thought that uh, they had to do something with methods that, again, we wouldn't consider today. But, you know, at the end of the day, it kind of worked, you know, like like Christianity survived those first several centuries. And, and obviously, you know, the, the work of the Lord was in that, the Spirit was in that. There were believers throughout those eras that were continually sharing the good news of Jesus, and, and it was taking root and flourishing. And I think we would be lying to ourselves if we didn't at least attribute some credit towards some of these political leaders that, uh, again, we wouldn't agree with necessarily today, but maybe in their failures, God also used them for his glory and for his good. Check out this sermon, and uh, I'd love to know your thoughts, listeners. Feel free to email us at revivethoughts at gmail.com if you have uh, any thoughts about this sermon from Cyril of Alexandria. Luke 12, 41-48 Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, My master is taking a long time in returning. And he then begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with a few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. It is a good and saving thing for us to direct the penetrating meditations of the mind on the words of God. For it is written of the words which God speaks, Who is wise, and he will understand them, or prudent, and he will know their meaning. For simply to hear and receive the spoken word in the ear is common to all men, both to the wise and to those who are not wise. But the habit of penetrating deep into profitable thoughts is found only with those who are truly wise. Let us therefore ask this of Christ. Let us imitate the blessed Peter, that chosen disciple, that faithful steward and true believer, who, when he had heard Christ say something beneficial for their understanding, prayed that it might be explained to him. He did not allow it to pass by, for he needed added clarity on the matter. And so he said, Lord, do you speak this parable for us or also for all? Is it, he asks, a general law and one that pertains in equal measure to all, or is it fitted for those only who are superior to the rest? What then was it which troubled the wise disciple, or what led him to wish to learn things such as this from Christ? There are then some commandments which benefit those who have attained to disciple dignities. 
those commandments for those who possess more than ordinary knowledge, but also the higher spiritual virtues, while others belong to those in the inferior state. And that this is true, and according to my words, we may see from what the blessed Paul wrote for certain disciples of his, I have given you milk to drink and not meat, for you were not yet strong enough, nor could you bear it. For solid food belongs to them that are fully grown, who by reason of perfectness have the senses of the heart exercised for the discerning of good and evil. For instance, as very heavy burdens can be carried by persons of a very powerful frame. In the same way, men of weaker strength are unequal. So those of a vigorous mind may justly be expected to fulfill the weightier and more excellent commands among those which should be borne by the saints. While commands are, that are, so to speak, simple and quite easy and free from all difficulty suit those who have not yet attained to this spiritual strength. The blessed Peter, therefore, considering with himself the force of what Christ had said, rightly asked which of the two was meant, whether the declaration referred to all believers or only to them as disciples. That is, to those who have been called to disciples and especially honored by the grant of apostolic powers. And what is our Lord's reply? He makes use of a clear and evident example to show that the commandment especially belongs to those who occupy a more dignified position, especially for those who have been admitted into the rank of teachers. For who, he says, is the faithful and wise servant whom his Lord will set over his household to give the allowance of food at its season? Let us suppose, he says, a householder who is about to go upon a journey has entrusted to one of his faithful slaves the charge of all his house to give his household, that is, his servants, their allowance of corn at its due season. When, therefore, he says he returns, if on coming to his house he shall find him doing as he commanded, very blessed will that servant be. For he will set him, he says, over all that he has. But if he was neglectful and indolent and took pleasure in oppressing his fellow servants, eating and drinking and given up to self-indulgent fleshly desires, he will be cut down. That is, he will have to bear the severest punishment when his Lord returns to him in a day that he does not expect him and at an hour of which he was not aware such then is the simple and plain meaning of the passage. But if we now fix our mind accurately upon it, we can see what is meant by it and how useful it is for the benefit of those who have been called to the office of teacher. The Savior has ordained men as stewards, so to speak, over his servants. That is, over those who have been won by faith to the acknowledgement of his glory men faithful and of great understanding and well instructed in the sacred doctrines. And he has ordained them, commanding them to give their fellow servants their allowance of food, and not simply and without distinction, but rather at its proper time, by which is meant such food, I mean spiritual food, as is sufficient and fitting for each individual. For it is not fitting to address simply to all who have believed in Christ instruction upon all points. For it is written, With knowledge learn the souls of your flock. 
For very different is the way in which we establish in the paths of truth one who has but just now become a disciple using simple teaching in which there is nothing profound nor difficult to understand. In this case, we are still counseling him to escape from the error of polytheism and fittingly persuading him to discern by the beauty of things created, the universal creator and architect who is one by nature and truly God. This is different from the way in which we instruct those who are more stable in mind and are able to understand what is the height and depth and the length and breadth of the definitions of the Supreme Godhead. For as we have already said, solid meat belongs to those that are fully grown. Whoever therefore will wisely in due season and according to their need divide to his fellow servants their portion, that is their food, very blessed will he be according to the Savior's word. For he will be counted worthy of still greater things and will receive a suitable payment for his faithful work. For he will set him, he says, over all that he has. And this the Savior has elsewhere taught us, where praising the active and faithful servant, he said, O good and faithful servant, you have been faithful over few things. I will set you over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. But if he says, neglecting the duty of being diligent and faithful and despising watchfulness in these things as superfluous, he lets his mind grow intoxicated with worldly cares and is seduced into improper activities, instead dragging by force and oppressing those who are under him and not giving them their portion, he will be punished with utter wretchedness. For this, I think, and this only is the meaning of his being cut down. And his portion, too, he says, will be with the unbelievers. For whosoever has done wrong to the glory of Christ or ventured to think offensively of the flock entrusted to his charge differs in no respect whatsoever from those who do not know him. And all such persons will justly be counted among those who have no love for him. For Christ even once said to the blessed Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Feed my sheep, feed my lambs. If therefore he who feeds his flock loves it, then of course he that neglects it and leaves the flock that has been entrusted to him without oversight must hate it. And if he hates it, he will be punished and be liable to the condemnation pronounced upon the unbelievers. He will be convicted by the very state of being negligent and contemptuous. He received the talent to trade in things that were spiritual and did not do so. But on the contrary, brought that which had been given him back to the master without increasing. Lord, I knew that you were a hard man, that you reap where others have sown and gather where others have scattered. And I was afraid and hid the talent. Oh, you have back what is yours. But those who had received the five talents are even yet more and labored and loved service for the master and they were honored with glorious dignities. For they heard the one of them, you'll be over ten, the other you'll be over five cities. While that horrible and slothful servant suffered the severest condemnation. To be negligent, therefore, in discharge of the duties of the ministry is everywhere dangerous, or rather brings upon men hellfire. But to perform them with unwearying zeal earns for us life and glory. And this means to teach 
to our fellow servants correctly and without error the things which relate to God. And whatever is able to benefit them in attaining both the knowledge and the ability to walk uprightly. And the blessed Peter also writes to certain people, Feed the flock of God which is among you, that when the chief shepherd appears you may receive your reward. And knowing that slothfulness is the door of hellfire, he again said, Woe is me if I do not preach. In that bitter and inevitable punishment is threatened against those who are slothful in this duty. The Savior immediately showed by adding to what had already been said two examples, one after the other. For the servant, he says, who knew his master's will and did not do it and did not prepare things according to his will will be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know it and did things worthy of punishment will be beaten with few stripes. Now the guilt is indisputable in the case of him who knew his master's will, but afterwards neglected it and did nothing that was fitting for it and which was his duty to do for it is manifestly sin and therefore the many stripes. But for what reason were the few stripes inflicted on him who neither knew nor did his master's will? For someone, for instance, may say, how can he who did not know it be guilty? The reason is because he would not know it, although it was in his power to learn of it. And if he who is entirely ignorant of it does not escape from anger, because when it was his duty to know he neglected the way of learning, what help can deliver him from justly bearing many stripes? Who knew and disregarded it? For to whom much is given, of him will be much required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will require the more. Very severe, therefore, is the condemnation of those who teach. And this Christ's disciple shows us, saying, Let there not be many teachers among you, my brethren, knowing that we will receive the greater condemnation. For abundant is the bestowal of spiritual gifts upon those who are the chiefs of the people. For so the wise Paul also somewhere wrote to the blessed Timothy, The Lord will give you wisdom in everything, and despise not the gift that is in you, which was given you by the laying on of my hands. From such as these then the Savior of all in that he has given them much requires much in return. And what are the virtues he requires? Constancy in the faith, correctness in teaching, to be well grounded in hope, unwavering in patience, invincible in spiritual strength, cheerful and brave in every more excellent achievement, that so we may be examples to others of the evangelistic life. For if we will so live, Christ will bestow upon us the crown, by whom and with whom to God the Father be praise and dominion with the Holy Spirit forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Josh Dornboss. He is a husband and father of five with a sixth child on its way. He works as a pastor of youth and music in a small church in Southeast Iowa. He says the part of the sermon that spoke to him very convictingly was the call for us teachers to use the full weight of our gifts to proclaim the weightier matters of the faith. He says, I pray that this will be of use to people of all stations and callings in the church 
to use all of their gifts to win others by faith to acknowledgement of his glory. If you like today's episode, feel free to share it with a friend. Uh, let them know we're back from a break. We were off for a little bit, uh, but we're back at it now. Uh, feel free to uh, share this episode and tell them that you like Revive Thoughts. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revived Thoughts.